Good morning, ladies. Good morning, Amy. Before we officially start today, um, I would like to take a minute uh, for, for me and for you to uh, thank your small group leaders. Um, they're wonderful. Aren't they wonderful? Yeah. And, and it's been such a blessing for me this year, both to have people uh, like Carol and Diane, who have been doing this with me for a very long time, and new people like Emily and Christina, and uh, just really fun to have. One of the things I love the most about Bible study is the span of ages that we have. I just love that. I love that it's women together, um, and, and I, that was a nice way of saying it, wasn't it? When I started this, I was on the younger end of the spectrum. Not so much anymore, uh, but that, it's just, it's so fun to have babies in the room and, and grandmas in the room together, uh, so I love that. But I want to thank them. Um, I do have uh, a little gift for each of them, so if you would give them a round of applause and you ladies can come up, and you too, Angela. Come on up, because I have something for you. <laughs> okay, and I need to apologize. I'm going to give Emily hers first because I need to apologize to her. There's the, the thing is, Emily, that apparently e-names are really popular. There were no e's. You get a T. <laughs> and I know that's even your married name, but you know. So, but thank you very much. Okay, and Diane. Oopsie. The paper went flying everywhere when I took it out of the car. It was kind of, so some, some of you have ripped up paper because I lost a couple pieces. And Cindy. Where'd Cindy go? Whoa. She didn't come up. <laughs> and this should be Christina. Christina. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. And Carol. Yeah. A lot of C's. And Terry, thank you. And Angela, you're very welcome. Thank you so much. It is, um, oh. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you. I, um, I love doing this. I'm going to confess something that I haven't confessed to anyone. For a good portion of the year, I've been thinking, should I really do this again next year, knowing that I'm gonna be teaching? And as I have gone, and by, it, during first semester, I would have told you this is gonna be my last year. James just rocked me. <laughs> and I'm like, I can't. I looked at Jeff, I said, How? I can't. I can't. I know I get paid for the other job, but I can't <laughs> stop this. And so uh, I just, I'm so grateful to each one of you for being here and um, <laughs> thank you. So thank you for this. I can already see that I'm going to cry when I read about the Royal Family Kids. Thank you for doing that. Uh, I wish I had all kinds of money to give to Royal Family Kids, and it's where my heart beats. So thank you for this and, and for all that you've done and for my small group leaders without whom I could not do this, and I, and I recognize that. So thank you very much. Um, I appreciate it. Do you have any questions before we begin? No questions. Okay. Yes. 
Yes, is it, is it an oath or is it swearing? And I will talk about that, but it, it is taking an oath. And it's taking a voluntary oath, not like he's not telling you that when you're in front of a judge and they tell you, so help me God, that you, I'm sorry, I can't say that. That's not what he's talking about. But we will talk about what uh, James means by that. Any other questions? Yes, Cindy. Right, yeah, we, and we definitely have to cover that, don't we, that, you know, he will be restored, and, you know, we all know that there are times when we pray for healing, and, and people aren't healed, at least not in the way that we want them to be healed, so we will definitely talk about that as well. Any other questions? Was that your question, Amy? Okay. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this book. Thank you for this semester. Thank you for these women. Um, Father, for their desire to know and to live out your word, uh, it... Um, convicts and inspires me and and I just thank you and praise you for that and for this opportunity I have to teach on Tuesday mornings. I love doing it and I love you in Jesus name. Amen. So we're going to begin by looking back a little bit because um, the first words of verse 7 where we start this week are be patient then or therefore. So because it's based on what he's just written I wanted to start by reading that. By the way I got a new I got, um, for the class I'm taking, I'm, I'm taking classes, master's level. I have to, to redo my teaching certificate, but I'm not enjoying it. But anyway, I had, to get, I had to get Microsoft Publisher to take the class, and the only way I could do that anywhere near affordably was to get micro, Office 3, 365 University. And so I got a new PowerPoint, too, and it was different. And I can tell already it's smaller, and I'm not happy. But that's okay. We can, we can make this work. Uh, but, yeah, beginning at verse 1 of James 5. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted, and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. So this is obviously a very harsh rebuke against the wealthy. Uh, and just before it, you remember that there was a, a rebuke against wealthy merchants or wealthy-ish, to use a Tim Weebyism, merchants for their arrogant planning. And then he comes to this harsh rebuke of hoarding and misusing wealth. And then his very next words are, be patient therefore, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. So this is based on what he's just said. Uh, and so what he, essentially what he's saying is, be patient therefore, because God is just. The wealthy will be judged, and you will not always suffer. There will indeed be a day when every tear will be wiped away, when every wrong will be made right. Live in anticipation of that day. Be patient in waiting for that day. That's not only a good word to the people to whom James is writing, it's a good word for us too. And he returns to his customary address here of brothers or brothers and sisters. The word is not specifically, uh, it's, it's neuter. It's not specifically male. So brothers and sisters, he returns to this customary address. Remember we talked about in James 5, 1 through 6, we didn't know for sure were those Christians, were they not Christians? I tend to believe they weren't. Here there's no question. 
As he begins verse 7, there's no question that these are his brothers and sisters in Christ. These are his parishioners, um, of, of which he considers himself a pastor. And most of them are poor. Uh, and so he's going to address them with a great deal of love. And he's going to tell them to persevere with patience. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. So he begins with this example of the farmer, saying be patient like the farmer. As the farmer is patient for the rains to grow his crops, we are to wait patiently for the Lord's coming. The farmer, particularly in James's day, but even today, had, had little control over the outcome of his crops. He couldn't affect it much. Today we have fertilizer and the big things with the water spigots and stuff like that. But they didn't have any of that. They had, they had predictable rains that hopefully would come. And so the, the farmer would trust that and trust God, and he, he, all he could do was wait and believe that the rains would come. So James here is also alluding to God's faithfulness because it actually doesn't say the, the spring and the fall rains. It actually just says the earlier and the later. And everybody knew what that meant. The other thing that everybody knew not only that that meant rains, but they also knew because they knew the Old Testament that every time that same wording is used in the Old Testament, it's as a testimony to the faithfulness of God. And so James's readers, original readers, would have known James is reminding us that God is faithful, that he's been faithful in the past, he is faithful now, and he will always be faithful. God will do what he has promised to do, and he has promised that Christ will return. So be patient until the Lord's coming. Now that word for the Lord's coming is the word parousia, which actually literally means presence or arrival. But very early on in the church, it came to be almost a technical term, and it's definitely a technical term today. In fact, in commentaries, they always refer to it this way, with this Greek word, Christ's promise to return to earth is the parousia. And so even though it literally meant arrival, everybody knew that this is what James was talking about. And at that time, when he returns, he will judge unbelievers and he will deliver the saints. And so be patient, James says, until that time. That word until is theos. Now we tend to think of until as meaning a time. So I'm going to be here at Brookside until about 1130. We think of it as being a span of time. This word, I love what one of the theologians said, said this is, this is a pregnant expression. I, that, that, I just thought that was so funny for a male to use that. But, but it has a, a pregnant sense because it doesn't just mean a span of time. It also suggests a goal as well as a period of time. This is, this is what James is saying. He's saying exercise patience as you wait for, as you look for the coming of the Lord. This is, this is 
confident expectation as well as perseverance in suffering. Um, when my daughter and I uh, visited Hope College in Holland, Michigan last um, fall, my sister who was with us said, we've got to go to the tulip place. It's the only Delft factory, uh, certified Delft factory in the um, United States, by the way. And if you, ha you've, you haven't seen tulips until you've seen this place. Now, they weren't blooming in October, of course, but I, 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 I was on like sensory overload because there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of kinds of bulbs you could get. And I am not a gardener. Now, I have to tell you that in theory, I believe that gardening is a good thing. And, and I especially believe that it's a good thing to do with your children. I just don't want to do it. Because, because the thing is that where I live, I have probably a 50-50 chance of encountering a snake, and that's just not going to happen. And I have a 100% chance of encountering earthworms, and they're almost as bad. Really, truly. For me, my college roommates used to leave cups of earthworms on my desk for me just to see my reaction. I know, they were awful. How I still love them, I have no idea. I, whenever it rains, I have this horrific choice to make. First of all, I can smell the worms. And secondly, I can either walk with my eyes closed knowing that I'm stepping on worms, or I can look down and see them smushed and alive. And oh my goodness, I hate earthworms. It stems back to a time when I stepped out of my front door as a kindergartner to go to the carpool, and I thought there was a snake there. Because this earthworm, I'm telling you, to the, to the five-year-old, it looked like it was this long. And I kept insisting. My mother had to carry me to the car because I was sure that was a snake. <laughs> So, so in theory, gardening is good. For me, not so much. So I spent a lot of time trying to figure out, and my sister's going through, so I'm going to have these, and these are going to go in the front, and I'm going to take some of these, and I'm going to put this. This is just going to be a pistache of color. And she knew everything. And I'm like, I don't know. How tall is this thing going to get? I don't know where to put them. I don't know. And so she's trying to help me. So I finally pick out these tulips. And I get home, and I mean, it was like, I was like little Miss Farmer. I, I read up on them. I did everything I was supposed to do. I planted them. I planted them in two different places. I'm so excited for these tulips. I got to tell you, ever since then in October, I have been like, I can't wait for the tulips to come up. I'm pretty sure they're not even going to come up. I probably planted them upside down, to be honest with you. But <laughs> they're probably growing down in the, hey, there's no daylight. Um, but... <laughs> But I'm so excited. There's this expectation I have of these tulips that are probably going to grow and die. But, uh, but I'm really excited for that. That's the way we're supposed to wait for the Lord. We know he's coming. And so we need to have this confident expectation, more confident than I am about my own tulip planting ability, to, that, that he will return. That's what that word uh, theos means for us. So he says, be patient, and stand firm. That word for, or that term for stand firm, stand firm, it literally means strengthen your hearts. Isn't that beautiful? Be patient and strengthen your hearts. And that's used frequently in the Bible. And almost everywhere it's used, it's in the context of enduring trials. Strengthen your hearts during this difficult time. And so this is an exhortation to the believers, that, that uh, same exhortation that he gave, on, uh, gave early on, that they needed to, uh, to hold fast to the faith in the midst of their temptations and trials. Because the Lord's coming 
is near. Now, did James really think like it was going to be in his lifetime, that it was imminent? That's not what, it, what he means by near. What he's saying is that it could happen at any time. We are living and have been living since the ascension of Jesus in the last days. This is the last time period, the last things that need to happen before Jesus returns. And so it could happen just for us, as with James, at any time. And James has told us we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We don't know what's going to happen in our life. We don't know what's going to happen in the world. Certainly world events around us should tell us this. In, in the state of Washington, they've just had this horrific mudslide. Nobody saw that coming, literally. We don't know what's going to happen. Therefore, we are to live in light of Christ's return. And while we do that, he says, don't grumble against each other. Now, this is, this is fitting in the context because, first of all, it, it's, a, it's a type of sp sinful speech. And that's been a huge, huge theme throughout the book of James. So don't grumble against each other. Don't sin against each other with how you speak. But the other thing James is saying in the context of these trials is that that is, that is very often what happens when we're under tri trial, when we're under stress. We begin to turn on each other. We begin to grumble against each other. I think I told you the story. I don't know for sure. I, I tell so many stories. Um, but I was backing into our garage recently, and I didn't realize the door was slightly down, and it, there was a big crash and I knocked the antenna off the back of the car. Katie comes down and throws open the door, and of course she's like as emotional as I am, probably a little more, uh, and she says, what did you do? And I'm like, I don't know! <laughs> Stress, it does that. And he says, don't do that, don't turn on each other like that. When you're under stress, as you face these, these trials and persecutions, because they were facing difficult times. And James is saying, be patient as you wait for the Lord. Be patient in your trials and be patient with each other as you await the coming of the Lord. Uh, and remember, it's near. The judge is at the door. And then he's going to give us another example, the example of the prophets and of Job, of, of patience and the suffering of the prophets. And I want you to notice this word in 10 because we're going to come back to it in a little bit. Brothers and sisters, as an example of the patience in the face of suffering, he talks about the, uh, the, the prophets. Remember that word suffering uh, in a minute. But this, many of the prophets, most of the prophets suffered greatly for their faithfulness to God and preaching God's word. And it was a word that people didn't want to hear. And sometimes when people tell us what we don't want to hear, we don't react well to it. And neither Israel nor the pagan nations reacted well. In fact, in Hebrews, we're told that, uh, how the prophets suffered, and we're told that some of them were sawn in two. And, and indeed, tradition tells us that that was the end of Isaiah, that Isaiah met his martyrdom by being sawn in two. And so they suffered greatly for their faithfulness to God. And, and they were patient in that suffering. And James is telling us to be patient in our suffering. And James is telling us the same thing that Jesus told us, that we will suffer. Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. And then he said, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. We are to bear up under that suffering, we're told that by Jesus, we're told that by James, we're told that by Paul. We are to maintain our spiritual integrity in trials. It is, however, God who enables us 
to bear up under those trials. And it is God who will cause good to come from those trials. It is God who will enable us to mature and to grow in those trials. And we will be blessed for it. And then he says, consider Job. Job? Seriously? Job? Because he complained a lot. Now, he suffered greatly, but he had no problem going, what in the world do you think you're doing to me? He complained to God a lot. And yet, he still uses this example of Job that seems an odd choice. However, despite his grumbling, James, or James, excuse me, Job never abandoned his faith. Yeah, he argued with God. Yeah, he complained to God, but it was an argument born of faith. He never took his wife's advice. His wife kept saying, just curse God and die, would you? He never did that. He did argue with God, but it was an argument born of faith. And so James is telling us, even Job, who argued with God, never abandoned his faith. And see what the Lord brought about in Job's life. Another pregnant word here, telos. It can have two meanings. It can mean purpose or it can mean end. And I think James uses this word intentionally because I think he means both. He's saying that God had purpose in Job's suffering. And he does in ours as well. But he also brought about a good end for Job. And he will for us too. So James's point in all this is that he's telling his readers and he's telling us too that your present suffering is not the end of your story. God will transform your situation for good when Christ is revealed, when Christ returns. So why will God do all this and how do we know he will do all this? Because the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Well, beginning at verse 12, James is going to begin his final exhortations. This is kind of the ending of his letter. And he says in verse 12, Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you will be condemned. Well, first, let's start with this above all. Really, could this be the most important thing? I mean, he's talked about murdering each other. Uh, that it, he doesn't mean most importantly. He means finally. This is signaling the end of his letter. Um, and what James means here by swearing is he means that uh, he's not talking about cussing. He's talking about an oath where one invokes the name of God to ensure the truthfulness of the statement. Like, I swear to God saying that. Um, and then I'm telling you that what I'm saying is true. If you watch the show, not that I ever do, if you watch the show Cops on any, any given day, you are going to hear someone say, I swear to God, officer, I have no idea how that cocaine got in my pocket. That is not my cocaine. Okay, James is saying that's a bad idea to do that. That's a bad idea to invoke God's name or anybody else's name to say that something's truthful when it is not. But he's saying, why, why is he saying O's? Why is he talking about O's here? What's so important with that? Well, first of all, in keeping with his emphasis on speech, he's saying that what we need to say needs to be truthful. What we say needs to be truthful. And if it's right, if it's true, you say yes. And if it's not, you say no. Because also the pinnacle of personal integrity, also an important theme in James, 
is that our speech is trustworthy, that our speech is true. Our word needs to be trustworthy. When we speak, we need to speak the truth. So what is it here that James, that James is forbidding? Because not all oaths are forbidden in Scripture. In fact, there are some oaths, like the oath we take if we're uh, testifying in court, are, are commanded in Scripture. So he's not forbidding any oath. What he, he's addressing a couple things here. First of all, he's addressing people who had a tendency, tendency to swear by something less than God so that they could fib. So I know if I swear to God, that's not a good idea to lie, but I can swear on my mother's grave for something and kind of just fib a little bit and I won't be in. And he's saying, don't even do that. Speak the truth. Only speak the truth. And, and the second thing that he's addressing is he's addressing voluntary oaths. He's not addressing official oaths like we talked about in, in court. He's saying, when you take a voluntary oath, don't, don't. Just say yes if it's yes. Just say no if it's no. Here's James's point in this, and I think this is a great quote. He, now, in the quote here, Dr. Moo is quoting um, Dr. Mitten. I'm pretty sure it's C.E. Mitten. There's a small possibility because my, my great-great-grandfather was C.E. Dutton. So there's a small possibility that I'm remembering the wrong C.E., but it's close enough because they all have initials. Jesus in Matthew is saying the same thing as James. Our truthfulness should be so consistent and dependable that we need no oath to support it. A simple yes or no should suffice. And then here he quotes Dr. Mitten. Our mere word should be as utterly trustworthy as a signed document legally correct and complete. Because we are followers of Christ and our integrity demands that we speak the truth. And then in verses 13 through 16... Um, James is going to address uh, prayer. And he says, Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. If, is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church and pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. At the end of New Testament letters, it was very common for the writer to give an exhortation to pray. And so this is not uncommon here. And it would have been very appropriate for James's readers who were experiencing trials and persecution to say, in your situation, whatever your situation, pray. And James is, is essentially telling them that very thing. And he's telling us, whatever you are facing, pray. Now he says... If you are, is anyone in trouble? That word trouble um, is, is the verbal form of the same word suffering that I pointed out to you, of the prophets. And so is anyone, he's essentially saying, is any one of you suffering? Um, uh, he's definitely still talking about trials and persecution uh, and suffering in this point, in this, uh, in this passage. And he's saying, how do we respond to that? We are to pray. Prayer, as I've said before, as we go through James, should be our default position. It should be our first response, not our last-ditch effort. And we're to pray for healing. And he says, if, if any one of you is sick, call the elders and have them pray over you. Now, that praying over could mean that the person is bedridden, that the person's very ill and bedridden. But it may also be, as one theologian said, it may also be shorthand for laying hands on someone. Uh, we don't know for sure, but it's, it's very possible because that was 
done and is still done today. And he says, and have them anoint you with oil. Boy, that's, that's, there's so many possibilities. There have been so many dis- interpretations of why would they anoint um, the person with oil. Some theologians say that it had medicinal purposes. But if you're praying for healing from God, <laughs> you know, and here's a little oil to help you, God. Uh, so I don't think it, they had anything medicinal in mind. In the Old Testament, anointing things with oil often was saying we're consecrating this thing for God, that it's set apart for God's purposes. And I think that's what he's saying with the anointing of oil here, that this person is being set apart for God's special attention and care. And then he says, the prayer will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. Now, some people get around this by saying, of course the Lord will raise him up. He dies, he gets resurrected, and the Lord heals him. And that is true. I don't want to make light of that because that is true. One day, we will all be perfect. We will all have, I don't know what the size would be, but maybe eight. I'd go with a size eight. I'd be fine with a size eight. Uh, And it is true that one day we will be resurrected and have um, perfect bodies. But I don't think that's what James means here. It's more likely that he's talking about a physical restoration. But how can that be? How can that be? That you just pray and every time someone is healed, we all know that that doesn't always happen. And so how do we interpret this? I think the key to this is the prayer offered in faith. But here's what that can't mean. It can't mean that the person or those praying just need to have enough faith. If they just have enough faith, the person will be healed. That type of theology Um, has laid an unnecessary guilt trip, even a damaging guilt trip, on too many people. If I just would have had enough faith, my mother would have been cured of cancer. It's just not true. It isn't the faith of the person. Here, let's read Dr. Mu again, because I think this is so helpful. Certain preachers and writers make a great deal of this call for faith, insisting that a believer simply needs to have enough faith in order to receive healing from the Lord. The devastating result of this line of thinking is that believers who are not healed when they pray must deal with a twofold burden, added to their remaining physical challenges the assumption that they lack sufficient faith. But this way of looking at faith and its results is profoundly unbiblical. And in this case, it isn't the person who's praying for themselves. It's, it's the, the leaders. It's the elders. Do they not have enough faith? If I just had better elders, I'd be healed. That's not what it means that the prayer offered in faith. Here's what I think it does mean. It means that it is a prayer offered with an understanding of God's sovereignty. It is the faith exercised in prayer is faith in the God who is sovereign and accomplishes his will. It is prayer that recognizes that God's will is supreme and clearly God does not always heal in this life. He is sovereign. And he knows what he's doing. It's similar to James 14, 14, where where Jesus, or not James, John 14, 14, where, where Jesus says, if you ask for anything in my name, you'll get it. 
And, and people say, well, then all we need to do is tack on, in Jesus' name, amen, and I'm going to get that BMW. It'll be waiting for me outside when I leave. And that is not what Jesus was saying. In someone's name, some, the, and the name of a person in Scripture is important. It stood for the character of the person. It stood for the person himself. And so what Jesus is saying there is to ask for something according to his will. That when we pray according to God's will, we can be confident that God will accomplish what he wills. God says, I will do what I purpose to do. And we can be confident when we pray in that, uh, in that will that God will do according to his will what he has promised to do. And then James says, therefore, based on all this, confess your sins. Confess your sins? That's what he gets out of this? Yeah, because James recognizes, and he's already said this, that the sick person will be forgiven for their sins. James recognizes that sometimes our sickness and our trials are due to our own sinfulness. Sometimes we bring it on ourselves. And our sicknesses are often spiritual as well as physical. And James recognizes this too. He also recognizes that when we are honest and vulnerable with each other in our community, sin loses its power and our community is strengthened. Therefore, confess your sins to each other. Consider for a minute how such authenticity with each other would impact a community of believers. Think of the support we could have and the power that would be broken uh, the power of sin that would be broken if we were honest about our struggles instead of pretending that we are just fine, thank you, even when we're not. If we just had the guts to say, look, I'm going to be really honest with you. I'm struggling with gossip. I'm struggling with lust. I'm struggling with pornography. I'm struggling with whatever it is if we were honest with each other about our struggles. James isn't calling us to air our sins to the whole world. He's not, he's not saying, just tell everybody, how are you today? I just got to tell you, I was having trouble with lust this morning. I, you know, that's not what he's telling us to do. But he is saying, find some safe people. Find some people you can trust who will hold you accountable and love you enough to pray for you and love you enough to speak truth into your life. The power of sin is broken when we do that. Because the truth is that we are all broken people. What James is saying is just don't just pretend like everything's okay. Don't put on some plastic Jesus face and say everything's great. I had a friend in college who was a singer. He actually, he still is. But um, I was his manager. It was great. We traveled all, I had a crush on him. We, we traveled all over southern Minnesota and he'd give concerts. And he had a song that was a parody of this whole thing, of this, you know, yeah, I'm just fine, bless Jesus, I'm blessed. I, and, and, and here's how, and I'm actually going to sing, and I, it's a good thing it's the last week because you wouldn't come back. This is how the chorus went. Praise the Lord, everything's wonderful. Christians don't have any problems. We're all perfect. Nothing is wrong with us. Isn't it a joy to be saved? I remember that 30 years later. Isn't that something? And that's what James is saying. Don't do that. Don't pretend. Be real with each other. Be honest. Be vulnerable. Because the truth is that we are all tragically broken. So don't pretend like you're not, because we are. And James knows how powerful that would be if the community would just live this out. And by the way, Satan also knows how powerful it would be, and that's why he doesn't want us 
to live this way, to live in authentic vulnerability with one another. And then in verse 16, he gives us this this powerful verse that you've heard many times before. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. The righteous person isn't some person that's just more righteous and has more faith than anyone else. When James says the righteous person, he means anyone who has been made right with God. Guess what, ladies? That's all of us. We have all been made right with God. It is not someone who is extraordinarily holy. It's all of us. The point isn't our righteousness, but it is, and it's not the greatness of our faith. It is the greatness of our God. We don't need to have great faith because our faith is in a great God. The problem isn't that we aren't righteous enough. It's that we don't pray enough. Such prayer is a powerful weapon in the hands of any believer. We just need to use it. And then he underscores this with the example of Elijah. He says, Elijah was a human being even as we are. He was just a guy and he prayed. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced crops. He's telling us that, look, Elijah's no super saint. He's a man just like us. Elijah put his faith in God, and he prayed. Literally, it says he prayed with prayer, and God showed up in a powerful way. James is telling us, and he's telling his readers, that God will show up for us too. I have seen this over and over again, and I know you have too. I wish I could tell you all kinds of stories. My mind immediately goes to the times I've been in Zambia. I was teaching one day in Zambia, and in the back of the room was a mother with her child, and I had trouble teaching because I kept looking at that baby, and I thought, that baby's dying. I'd never seen a sicker child, and the mother's sitting there listening to me teach. I'm like, get the baby out of here, but there was no doctor take her to and so we all gathered together and we prayed by that afternoon a child was out playing with all the other kids unbelievable there was a, a camper whose real name I can't use but she was probably the most broken camper that I've ever experienced in 10 years of going to royal family nothing about this child reacted normally and she had a horrible time falling asleep that happens a lot with campers because nighttime is when they've been abused and they have a horrible time falling asleep, especially in a strange place. And the first night when she wouldn't fall asleep, and she'd keep, she'd keep engaging us in conversation because that way she wouldn't have to fall asleep, Jenny Thingval came in and just rubbed her back and sang and sang and sang until she finally fell asleep. The next night it was my turn to do that, and I was already losing my voice from teaching every day, and I don't sing that well as you've just witnessed. And, and <laughs> she... Um, she was having trouble falling asleep, and finally, and I was having trouble singing, and I think she was ready for me to stop singing. <laughs> so I asked somebody to turn on the, the uh, radio or turn on the, the CD that was in the um, player. And the song that came on was When He Cometh, which was the song my mother sang me to sleep with when I was a child. And her mother sang her to sleep when she was a child. God is so good. He shows up. He meets us in our need. And he met me in my need that night. And James is telling us, pray. He will, he will show up. He will meet you in your need. 
And then he ends with these words, my brothers and sisters, if any one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. This is a fitting ending. This is a call to action. And, and it's very unlike other greetings uh, or other endings that have greetings and travel plans and, and a benediction. James ends with a call to action. In a book with more imperative verbs, with more commands per word than any other book in the New Testament, this is a fitting way to end. And he's talking about restoration of two different kinds of people. If a believer begins to wander from the faith, we are to gently restore them. We are to lovingly restore them. If someone is not yet aware of the truth of the gospel, we are to lovingly and gently teach them that they might be saved from an eternal death and, from, and that their sins might be covered by the blood of Jesus. I'm going to read Dr. Moo one last time. If James is indeed something of a sermon, and many uh, theologians believe that this is a sermon that he wrote down, uh, rather than originally a letter. In epistolary form, these last two verses are an appropriate conclusion. Not only should the readers of James do the words he has written, they should be deeply concerned to see that others do them also. It is by sharing with James in the, in the conviction that there is indeed an eternal death to which the way of sin leads, that we shall be motivated to deal with sin in our lives and in the lives of others. What a book this book of James is. I, I had, I mean, I've read it, but I had no idea. I had no idea the impact it would have on my own life. And here's my prayer for us as we leave for the summer, that we would so consistently live out the gospel in our lives that others would be drawn to Jesus, that we would live in such loving, patient, and authentic community, that it would pique the interest of non-Christians. I pray that we would pray more often and more earnestly than we ever have before. And I pray that our hearts would beat with God's for those who are most vulnerable in our world to such a degree that our very lives and our pocketbooks would reflect that conviction. Ladies, I want to thank you. I am so grateful and humbled that you came along for this ride. Thank you so much. Uh, I love all of you, and from the bottom of my heart, I do appreciate you. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this book. Thank you for the conviction that it has brought to my own life, and I pray, Father, that, um, that it has been helpful and useful and meaningful in the lives of these ladies as well. We love you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.